You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Good afternoon. This is uh, Erin Decker uh, for the Hayek Program podcast. I am continuing my series on ordo liberalism today with Karen Horn. Uh, who is Honorary Professor in Economics in Erfurt in Germany. She's also the co-chair of the News Network in Germany, which brings together scholars working on constitutional political economy and um, people interested in uh, economics in a free society more generally, which is also where we met uh, several times at the wonderful events they put on. Uh, Karen, welcome. Hi, Erin. Nice to, to be here with you. I'm, I'm really pleased to be part of this. Yeah, that's great to have you. Uh, today we want to talk about ordo liberalism. Um, and I've talked with uh, Stefan Kolev and Malte Dold before about this. Um, but nonetheless, I'd love to just start at the beginning um, because um, ordo liberalism is not as well known outside Germany as an intellectual tradition, although more and more work is being done on it, particularly in relation to neoliberalism. So I was wondering just to get your first perspective on what order liberalism is and why people should care about it. It's hard to know where to begin. It's such a such a big question. And order liberalism is a lot of things. And I think um, often the, the different levels get mixed up. So let's begin with that, perhaps. Yeah. Um, I tend to say that order liberalism is at least three things. Um, perhaps four. <laughs> the first one is that it is a normative standpoint. Um, people who engage with order liberalism have a preference for the value of individual liberty. That's the liberal part. Ordo refers to the notion that in order to not only guarantee liberty, but a, a life worth living, a good life, you need to think in orders and orders that communicate between themselves. So this is this is a whole intellectual program. It has nothing to do with pure economic approaches. It is something that it is at the same time philosophical, ethical, political, and well, legal. The legal profession is involved as well, and economic. So it's it's a very broad conception with a normative point to it. So that is one thing. Then, of course, if you have that normative um, standpoint and you do research, you usually also want to give policy advice. So in, in German, we have this term Ordnungspolitik, the pol policy of, of order, which is about what follows from this normative standpoint in terms of economic policy. So that's a whole whole thing in itself. And the third one is the research program in, in academic studies. And I tend to think that that is not necessarily normative. Um, it is about rules of the game, about the question which rules are um, conducive to, to the good life, which, which rules serve people best, and which of them work. So in a sense, that's 
constitutional economics or even institutional economics. And you can very well do that without bothering yourself with any kind of a normative standpoint. You just look at what works. So these three, and, and some people add a fourth, more epistemological uh, level to it, these different levels come together, tend to get mixed up. <laughs> but I think for analytical purposes, it is useful to sort of keep them apart. Um, so that's what the definition is. And I think at the, what stands at the core is really the idea of a functional, efficient, but at the same time, humane and ethically worthy um, order for, for, for society. And that's what makes it very attractive, I think. Yeah. So, it's, um, so, 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 I'm, so I'm intrigued by how you set it up in the beginning with uh, the, the, the sort of broad philosophical as well as sociological and economic um, sort of thinking in orders program. Is this what the Germans would call ordo liberalism as an Weltauffassung, a, a perspective on the world? Is that how how we how we should think about that, or is that is that too too overarching? No, I I actually quite like that because everything begins from that. It begins with an image of man and with an image of society and how. The different levels of our interactions actually overlap. Um, I, I think, yeah, it, the, as I said, the beginning is really in, in, in an ethical sphere, and that has to do with how lo you look at the world. Yeah. And everything else follows from that. So, so does that also mean that the, to you, the sort of uh, theological or sort of anthropological origins of it are quite important? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, the thinkers who came up with these ideas were all quite firmly rooted in philosophy, but also in in, in, in the Christian belief. So um, it was a lot about um, yeah, guaranteeing the possibility for the individual to live a life according to his or her value standards. And these value standards tended to be directly derived from the Christian faith. So that is something that is specific to it, which does not mean that it cannot be adopted by, by people with other backgrounds. It is, at the, what stands at the core is the idea of the good life. And if you want, you can trace that back to the, and to the ancient Greeks. That's not necessarily yeah. linked to, to Christian theology, but it was in the historical context, that is clear. Yeah. yeah. So in previous conversations, I've also talked a little bit about the the, the origins, um, which are typically traced to either the 1920s or the 1930s, when ordo liberalism sort of emerges as a coherent uh, set of ideas, as well as um, at least partly sociological networks of of scholars working together, um, finding sometimes common ground and other, at other times common enemies, um, and so we typically tend to associate that also with, I, I suppose, a founding, but also a golden age of liber order liberalism. Um, but it continues to this day. It, is, is there a thinker that stands out to you in the tradition that you feel particularly attracted to or that you feel captures um, something as very essential about it? In the historical tradition, yes. In sort of current thinking about order liberalism, it's a bit 
more difficult. Yeah. <laughs> um, concerning the historical thinkers, I, I believe that the person who is usually considered really the founding father of ordo liberalism, which is Walter Eucken in Freiburg in Germany, is really the the role model for every <laughs> ordo liberal. So. Um, for several reasons. Uh, first of all, I think it's the depth of his approach, um, which uh, is is rooted in philosophy. He had a very thorough um, philo- philosophical and ethical background, which is also due to the fact that his father was a philosopher and, and very famous. Uh, Rudolf Eucken earned a Nobel Prize in Literature for his philosophical work and was very well known in, in Germany at the time. And his thinking influenced his son, and, and so that that he he had quite some baggage to begin with, and turned to economics at some point because he wanted something concrete and something where you can actually do things yeah. <laughs> and, and achieve something. So I, I like him for his background, and I like him for his very clear ethical standpoint. I also like the personality. He was a very uh, level-headed man, a very kind person. Um, to the, in, in contrast, for example, to to Rupke, who was really very bubbly and easily irritated, <laughs> Eucken wasn't quite like that. He was he was very calm and very friendly, and, yeah. um, and so I, I like the personality. And then, of course, what matters a lot to, to to me, and I think to a lot of people, is his role in um, in, in the time of the Third Reich. He was. Um, he was part of the academic resistance to to the Hitler regime, and that is that is quite something. To move to to Eucken and um, his opposition to to Hitler um, and his uh, his academic opposition, um, right? That is fascinating. But I think the um, the intellectual opposition. Um, also happens at the level of ideas. So they're trying to rethink how um, fascism came about. They're starting to uh, think um, whether perhaps something in liberalism had gone wrong uh, in in the decades before, uh, whether they had uh, blind spots. So what is it precisely um, that they're starting to rethink and how deep does that rethinking go? Should we think about it as a new form of liberalism, or is this a sort of rediscovery of uh, insights that uh, had been prominent in the past, but that are now being, um, yeah, sort of reintegrated into the liberal tradition? Um, how do you think about that? Yeah, um, as, as as you mentioned earlier, this is a, a new sort of movement or a new school that comes into being essentially in the thirties, and the program will then be. Uh, fleshed out in the in the 40s essentially but what happened in the 30s what was that uh, there was widespread in dissatisfaction with um the, the the ideas of liberalism and and there was a feeling that liberalism had somehow failed that it was not successful in the political arena and also that it had flaws in terms of a philosophy um that was well famously connected with the colloque Walter Lippmann, which was held in Paris in 1938. Um, all the thinkers who gathered there thought that there was a flaw in, in liberalism and something needed to be done about it. 
There was a political reason for that, and that was obviously that um, liberalism had failed Germany, at least. <laughs> so that was that was visible. But also in other countries, there was a feeling that somehow the modern society was not at peace with liberalism. It, it simply, there was just too much turmoil going on. The rules of the game were not conducive to um, stability and, and, and peace. So um, there was this discussion going on whether liberalism had internal flaws that one could get at by thinking better about it, or whether there were external factors that were perhaps a little bit harder to come by. But but that was that was really the feeling, and I I think that some of these internal factors that they looked at were actually sort of made up, not not very convincing. They they were the product of a perhaps ill-conceived perception of what classical liberalism was and what was inherited from, from, from classical thinkers. Essentially, um, that idea was perceived as being basically pure laissez-faire as a recommendation for policy. And I think when you look at the classical writings of people, for example, like Adam Smith, that's not exactly what you find there. But that's the way it was perceived. That was the, the reception of, of Adam Smith. And people thought that actually what had happened in the real world was an adaptation of laissez-faire, which in the end didn't work. So the idea was, we need to reform this. We need to reform our own thinking go beyond laissez-faire, think about rules that need to be created and enforced by government and not have this night watchman state anymore, which I'm not sure ever existed, but, but that, was the, <laughs> that was the notion. So, so there's also a sense, I, I, I suppose, that because in those readings, they sort of start to object to a, a, a thinking in terms of natural harmonies, um, right? And I think that is present today as well, um, right? If you have a polarizing society, you start to wonder whether societies tend toward conflict or whether they tend toward a kind of social harmony and perhaps even a kind of convergence, right? As we sometimes speak about in economics when we do growth theory. Uh, or whether there's divergence and polar polarization in society, and is is that one of the one of the one of the questions that they ask themselves in this period, and why they perhaps are are less convinced by sort of Smithian uh, optimism about natural harmonies? Or oh yeah, well that is that is precisely what they what they tend to see in in, in Smith and everything that follows from Smith, um, the idea that you can just lay back and do nothing and essentially have no state and, and and things will fall into place naturally. It's just such a glaring mis misreading of Smith that it's a little bit hard to accept that position. But if we take it away from Smith and, and just focus on, on their notion that the, the, the rule level, the, the idea of the framework that is needed for uh, human interaction to perform well, that sentiment was one that one could have in the 30s. Um, 
it was a completely new order. The old order was at least destroyed by the First World War. And then the political arena in, in many countries, and especially in Germany, was sort of in a transitory stage. Parliamentarism wasn't very much liked by, by most. Most of the people didn't perform very well. The constitution was, wasn't bad, but wasn't always functioning in the way it should, etc. So in, in this age of uncertainty, they felt that the, the, the idea of rules needed much more care and much more um, attention. And, and, and their idea was that that had been neglected. Whether it was neglected by themselves or by the classical literature is something for the historian of thought. And I, I believe that they just misread a lot of the classical literature. But in the political situation that didn't really matter. They had a point in 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 their time. Yeah, and it also brings up interesting questions about uh, German history, right? Le leaving leaving aside the question of intellectual history, um, I think a lot of the literature suggests that the 1848 liberal revolution that took place in many countries was, at the very least, weaker in Germany, if not uh, a complete failure. Um, then there's the era of Bismarck in, in the late 19th century, which is uh, imperial. Uh, then there is perhaps a short decade and a half of, I don't know, at least a globalizing world and an industrializing Germany, which we might somehow very broadly associate with um, a kind of trend toward liberalism. But then, right, there's a First World War, they lose. Uh, and so in some sense, right, even the idea of restoring a liberal Germany seems seems almost odd because what what period would you point back to? Um, is 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 that something you see and 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 is that perhaps also a reason why, at least in my reading, stability plays an, a, a more important role in in how they think uh, about, which sometimes gives their work a little bit of a conservative, uh, sort of, sort of bent, but perhaps it has something to do with this idea that there's not really a, a liberalism that that they can restore, as one might think of in, in perhaps England or so. But in in some sense, they're for the first time inventing a or imagining a liberal liberal Germany or a completely liberal Germany. Well, our order liberal friends believe that um, actually the Kaiserreich, <laughs> the the empire, had quite a good rule framework, especially when it comes to economic liberties. So what they wanted was to restore that. They didn't necessarily want to restore monarchy, but they wanted to come back to the, to the old rule system, which enabled an early globalization as well. They, they just thought that there was a huge risk of that being lost forever, and they they just strove to reestablish that. So that is, that is one thing. That was the reference point. And that also explains why some of them, and Eugen is no exception, were quite skeptical of parliamentary democracy as it was established after the war. It was sort of um, a forced creation um, of, of the lost war. And so it was clear from the beginning that it wasn't much loved, but there, there was also some systematic objections to it. Um, when you look at the Weimar Constitution and also at the laws that were then passed in, in Parliament, you see that there were a lot of 
instruments ranging from nationalization to um, state interference with wage setting and, and, and things like that. And all these elements for um, the order liberal thinkers went against the economic liberties that they wanted to, to protect. So it, it was via the economic interventionism that the Weimar um, constitution enshrined that they got more and more skeptical of parliamentary democracy. And that is, that is really a pity because um, they, they did see the political liberties as, as rights and, 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 and very much believed in that, but they saw a conflict there and it took them quite some decades to, to unlearn that <laughs> and to build, to build new trust in, in political um, democracy and, and, and political rights played out within a well-established framework, um, which is the whole point. You need frameworks that, that function well, and that also applies to the political sphere. Yeah. So, so you told me that you, you're currently uh, also working on the Treaty of Versailles. Um, which uh, in to to the historian of economics immediately makes you think of Keynes because Keynes and his economic consequence of the peace, right, is a, uh, I, I, in my opinion, at least rightly famous uh, analysis of um, the likely consequences of the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, it would impoverish Germany and, and, and risk a lot of political and economic instability in Germany, which... Uh, right, and I, I think part of the fame of the piece derives from the fact that this more or less plays out, uh, although of course in a in a different way than even Keynes could have imagined. But um, the instability is there. Um, you, you you mentioned that you you were currently working on um, how um, Eucken and, and Rupke um, um, thought about the Treaty of Versailles. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, actually, it's 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 a paper I'm writing on a controversy they had. Um, they they didn't really have a controversy on on Keynes as such because they they weren't very pleased with his interventionist policies. They they didn't really think his approach in general was was the good one. They were far too much rooted in the Austrian tradition for explaining business cycles to be sort of ready to, to adopt a Keynesian viewpoint. Um, so that, that was nothing they would disagree on, but the disagreement had to do with, um, with the Treaty of Versailles and with Keynes's criticism. Now, Rupke was very vocal about, about that. He sort of, he was on a sort of a lifelong crusade against Keynes, which is funny because when he was younger and, um, and, and still living in Germany, he was sort of considered as the one uh, modern economist who was working in the Keynesian tradition. But he really <laughs> fell from faith and turned into the in, into the opposite, and and attacked Keynes ever since wherever he could. And that's quite quite a story in itself. But anyway, um, so what they disagreed on was. Um, Actually, his endorsement of a, another famous book, which is the book by Etienne Montou, um, on the economic consequences of Mr. Keynes, so to speak. And uh, he, he, he actually said that Keynes was totally wrong in his assessment of the Versailles Treaty and that to some extent um, Keynes had a share of guilt in, in, 
in the in the rise of the Nazis and in, in World War II. And that is something that Repka full-heartedly subscribes to and endorses. And, uh, well, I can... As I said, he's 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 the nicer character, and he defends Keynes. He says, "Well, you cannot read history backwards, and one must defend Keynes against that." So that's really going too far. Um, and he also thinks that it is not a good idea to to say anything like that after the Second World War, because this controversy is taking place after the Second World. Oh, okay. And, okay. Yeah. And he he says, well, if you we follow through on that, what we will earn is just more reparations, and Germany will go on under something like the Morgenthau Plan, and will be crushed completely. And that's not something we can want. And so they they argue a bit on that, and it's it's, it's interesting to see what's going on behind the scenes. And I mean, I can use a lot of private letters and that's that's really fascinating on top of yeah. the material that has been published so 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 what is Rupke's um critique of Keynes is it is it that Keynes was not forgiving enough because I think the the sort of standard reading of the economic consequence of the piece is that Keynes is one of the few uh commentators at the time who is yeah I I always have I always use that quote in teaching to illustrate a little bit the the, the, the breadth of Keynes's economics, but he invokes sort of Christian I- ideals of forgiveness and um, and mercy uh, to say why the the reparations that are um, right written into the Treaty of Versailles are too harsh. Uh, but Rocker sort of claims that they're that that even with Keynes's warnings, there would have been too much reparations or. No, no, he, he considers that actually Germany was able to pay. Okay. And, and all the fuss that was being made and endorsed by Keynes about how Germany would not survive this, <laughs> we're, we're just wrong. And uh, basically that boils down to the Allies should have been perhaps even harsher. The treaty was not harsh enough, essentially. Oh, okay. And, um, well... <laughs> It it is it is difficult to say exactly where Rupert stands because after the Versailles Treaty was was imposed and signed, he was of course not a fan of it. And and in in publications that he wrote later on, he he, he saw it as the path towards catastrophe, basically. Yeah. But somehow, um, the uh, Nazi regime and the Second World War changed his view and and he sort of thought that maybe the second catastrophe caused by Germany could have been avoided if they had followed up on 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 the um, reparations and the harshness of the treaty and the, the fact that it all was stretched out about such a long time was was certainly harmful and didn't didn't help confuse anybody. <laughs> Yeah. And, and I think that's something he makes him change his mind a bit. So it's, yeah. it's complex. <laughs> yeah, but it's yeah, yeah. No, it, it's it's certainly complex. I understand now sort of claim about reading history, sort of right, sort of backwards with the, with the benefit of hindsight, being able to judge that if we could have taken away even more economic power, then perhaps uh, a, a new rise of Germany would have been could have been prevented. But it is a question, right? Uh, um, that that continues to this day. I mean, I think uh, currently how Europe Europe has to deal with with Russia and how uh, 
how strong the sanctions are go are going to be, uh, and to what extent you're willing to make Russian citizens pay for decisions of the of the regime. Uh, right, is still a very live one and one that uh, also liberal economists certainly don't always agree on. I don't know whether you you have any any sort of perspective on that, but. Um, Oh, absolutely. It's something that I can't stop thinking about because it's, yeah. it's really the setting is so similar to the first World War situation in a way. Um, Germans didn't feel that it was them who had caused the war. And that's yeah. certainly what Russians will tell us once, once this is over. They will yeah. say it was all the provocation by the West and, and you know, that, that kind of propaganda that they're learning right now. So, um, it will be hard to, to reach people's minds. That's, that's the first thing. And then the second problem after World War One was that Germans didn't see the destruction. Yes, soldiers had been lost and families had lost family members, but there was no destruction visible. There was no occupying force marching through the streets. There was no sign, there no visible sign of the war being fatally lost. And yeah. that might be true for Russia too. As long as it remains a defensive war protecting Ukraine and not an offensive war attacking Russia, they won't see anything of um, the fact that they, they will hopefully lose. And for the time afterwards, that, that might be a problem. It might um, sort of create this sense that was so prevalent in Germany about having treated unfairly, about um, having been ascribed this moral condemnation of the guilt, the war guilt clause that was enshrined. Apparently, that's what they say, but it actually isn't. But anyway, um, in, in the Versailles Treaty, um, all that stuff that will... Um, be on people's minds and in their mentalities that might reproduce itself in russia and that that worries me to no end yeah yeah um okay i want to switch gears a little bit um because um i think something unique about your own personal traje trajectory is that um more more broadly i think you have wide wide experience in in economic journalism and um, as a historian of economic ideas, I, I, of course, work under the naive assumption that ideas really matter. Um, but I, I wonder what your perspective is, uh, having uh, covered, um, I think, uh, a, a, a very interesting period among uh, others in which we, we got the euro uh, and there was more European integration, but perhaps also the, the financial crisis. Um, to what extent you feel that um, ideas currently matter in how uh, European economic policy or German economic policy is conducted, or whether um, we should, um, yeah, historians of economics and perhaps people interested in ec economic ideas should more generally be um, sort of much more open to the idea that it's that it's interest uh, do doing a lot of the work rather than than ideas. Oh, but yeah, that's a very nice um, topic and question. Um, I, I do think that interests play a huge role, but then you need ideas to cover them up. <laughs> so so um, if you find good ideas, um, they, will, they will be used in, in, in the public discourse and they will be used in political arguments. We just talked about Putin's war against Ukraine, just just listen to Putin. He uses a lot of 
notions from philosophy and sometimes even from from theological works, etc. So he, people who do policy use figures of speech and figures of thought, of course, um, that they that they find in 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 their cultures and that are that are widely accepted. So I do think that by that way. Um, ideas will be very influential. They are used uh, and, and they sort of frame our way of thinking because we, we get used to them and um, they provide a framework for our uh, mental analysis. So I, I yes, I do think um, they still have a role even if we don't vote for ideas, we vote for politicians if we, if we get yeah. to vote at all. Um, and I think the, the, the task for the historian of ideas is to see and have a closer look whether these ideas are really used in a correct way. And that's, for example, why I like to work on Adam Smith, why I like to work on Keynes also, and, and other people, um, Hayek, of course, and, and others, because of their ideas have not always been used in a very faithful fashion. And if you build policy on a framework that is borrowed from a thinker, it might be helpful to see whether he or she was really just as strict on, on a certain point or whether that point has actually been been turned around. That's what I think is the case with Smith, who was not a laissez-faire advocate at all, who knew a lot about institutions and, and all kinds of things that people rediscover now. And the same is, is also true for Keynes. He was not just a... Um, demand management men yeah, yeah. a lot more than that so I think if you want to dismantle a discourse which might go in the wrong direction you you need to to look at these thinkers again read them again and feed that back into the public discourse and um, so yeah I think um, ideas do matter and it's important to get them right and to remind people of that. <laughs> Yeah. So one of the most famous um, figures of speech perhaps associated with uh, with order liberalism is the idea of the soziale marktwirtschaft or the social market economy. Um, is, is that an idea that has been used to cover whatever social policy um, uh, is is on is on the political agenda anyway, or is that uh, still sort of a live guiding ideal in 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 German social policy, and perhaps uh, one of the ways in which order liberal ideas have been able to frame and 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 shape uh, discourse? And I, I understand that this is a very broad question, right? Because the term goes back um, at least to the 1950s, and 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 here we are, 70 or 80 years later. Um, um, so. Perhaps it's too broad, but I, I would still like to have sort of so, some, something tangible to to give us a bit of a sense of how the, how that might work that you are able to frame or shape a debate in a particular direction. Actually, I think um, the the invisible hand notion is easier to deal with. But I would <laughs> okay. about the social market economy since you asked me that. That is actually not a strictly order liberal idea when you look at the history of the of, of the notion of both notions um, order liberalism preceded the social market economy and whereas um, order liberalism tends to think that the, the social concern comes from 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 the very approach and from the way how the order is conceived 
um, the social market economy knows a lot more additions to the market economy to 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 repair it to make it better, etc. So it's it's a slightly different um, way of of approaching this. So that's one thing. Um, the, the the term as such. Um, was quite clever it, it was meant or it was even called the the ironic formula the peace bringing formula that would sort of harmonize the social concerns with the idea of the free market but of course that's also its problem because some people will say yes we want the social market economy because we want more social policies and other people will say, yes, we want it because we want more free market policies, and these will automatically be, be socially good. So, yeah. And and you always have this tension, not only in the term, but also in the in, in the discourse of the politicians or the public that will refer to the term. And we regularly see um, opinion polls in Germany asking whether people think that the social market economy is performing well. And I, I tend to not even look at the results because it's completely meaningless <laughs> because you never know whether people think that it's not enough of the free market or whether it's not enough of social intervention. People just tend to be sometimes a little bit more happy and sometimes less, but you never know why. <laughs> yeah. So that's pointless. So um, still, I would say that in, in terms of distinguishing the German model from let's say, fair or American capitalism or other forms of, of, of capitalism, it might give a rough idea and has been helpful in that respect, even though internally it is it's quite sloppy as a concept. Yeah. And having this, having this uh, notion to sort of rally behind has been helpful in order to ward off temptations in, in, in both directions. Whenever... Um, People wanted too much intervention. There was this warning: we are jeopardizing the social market economy. We should stop here, etc. And the same was true in the in the other direction as well. So um, we don't want to become a wild west um, capitalism, etc. We we need to stop that at some point. So as, as a buttress, it, it I think it was historically useful for the German variant of of capitalism. In the beginning, you 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 referred to this, um, at least to me, somewhat obscure idea of Ordnungspolitik. So, is is <laughs> a, having a social market economy is that an example of Ordnungspolitik, or is the social market economy more a kind of uh, a typical economic policies and 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 social economic policies, and is Ordnung sort of a more constitutional uh, level that we should think about? Well. Social social market economy is the the idea of that is that um, you you do have a, an order that will in itself produce socially good results, but you can add a lot of things like income redistribution, etc. And, and and that goes farther than goes the the classical order liberal concept. The classical order liberal concept is really encapsulated in Walter Eucken's competitive order. And he has a set of criteria for that, and, and and one of the sort of of the criteria of last resort <laughs> is that you can have a little bit of income redistribution, but only to the extent that it is needed to make people participate in the market process, so that 
the price mechanism will produce relative prices that really um, reflect scarcity in the in the marketplace. So that that is the rationale. Only to that extent should you have perhaps a little bit of income redistribution. Social market economy is is more permissive. It, it is just much broader. And if you wish, um, it is perhaps much more um, adapted to to modern concerns. I don't think that the, the pure competitive order concept is one that people would endorse. It's just, yeah. it is an ideal type and I can did think in ideal types. Yeah. Uh, and I think, don't think it is as such easily um, put into practice. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I wanted to ask you uh, um, to conclude about one other recent project uh, that you've did uh, that um, which is uh, an edited collection of the, the writings of Herbert Giersch. Um, I hope I pronounced that correctly, who was a very prominent German economist in the uh, post-war years. Uh, I believe one of the founders of something akin to a Council of Economic Advisors. Um, can you tell us a little bit about him? And perhaps he's also a case study for how order liberalism might have shaped uh German economic policy, or perhaps not at all. Um, I was going to ask you what makes you think that he was a neoliberal. Um, no, I, I I I wasn't thinking thinking that so much. But I I, I do have, and this is uh, not not being German myself, and this period being some something of a something of a a blind spot, perhaps the what what happens after the fifties and 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 the sixties, thinking well. You know, we, we think of this period as a flourishing period of the, the social market economy uh, and more more generally, right, it's associated in, in, in German economic history with the, the Wirtschaftswunder, the economic miracle, uh, and perhaps he comes slightly, slightly after uh, this, this period of, uh, of reconstruction. But even so, uh, generally, um, these are the, the golden decades. And so I thought that there was... Um, you being involved, a sort of attempt to sort of say, you know, this we can sort of idealize very much uh, thinkers who were uh, pure uh, in in their ways, but we can also look at uh, people who worked at the intersection between economics and politics, and recognize that they did quite a bit. And I think one other reason, uh, not to say too much, but one other reason that I, I started thinking about this is that. Um, a good friend of mine in in the Netherlands is looking at uh, a, a key central banker who also was a minister of finance, and um, sort of reappreciating um, through private letters and and other writings the sort of more ideological aspects of it, because um, especially in in Dutch politics, there's a there's a tendency to write people off as sort of pragmatists or um, yeah. Um, middle of the road uh, sort of centrist politicians and he he i think has done a very convincing job for at least this uh, this historical figure to um show that there was influence um on institutional ideas and there was also a real um fight between him and and the person i studied tim Bergen, who was more of an economic engineering type to sort of say no 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 we should keep keep a central bank some, and monetary policy somewhat separate from other domains of economic policy. And so there were more political economic concerns than one might have at first discovered. And so I haven't read these 
these edited volumes or these writings. But I was just thinking, is this another example of, of, of that type? Um, well, as a matter of fact, Giersch was very influential. You're right in, in, in that hunch. He, um, and as you said, he started out in the 50s. He, he, he got his first chair in 1955. So yeah, he, he, was, he came after the foundational years. But, but then he, he did teach, and over the years he, he also became influential in the political sphere as an advisor. Of course, he, he never had a political career himself. He, he always told the economist that he was, um, but he was a founding member of the German Council of Economic Experts, which was created only in '63, so that wasn't around before that. And it was created in well you know in in a very keynesian mood so um this this was no longer the pure order liberal era that was over by then <laughs> this was uh this was moving beyond um the foundations if you wish. now um in 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 the collected works we, we just we just published the first two and there will be a lot more to come. <laughs> and the first one in, in this series is, is his foundations. It's, it's called Allgemeine Wirtschaftspolitik Grundlagen, the foundations. And if when you read through the chapter where he talks about um, political and economic philosophies and normative standpoints, it is very easy to detect where he stands and where his sympathies are. And, and those are with the order liberals. That's, that's pretty clear. Um, as, a, as an economic thinker, however, um, I don't think he was extremely influenced by them. He was, he was you know, order liberalism as a, as, an, as a research approach sort of stops in the 50s. Um, Eichen dies in 1950, Röpke is abroad and, and is sort of no longer really into research. The school sort of dissolves and takes a long time to be somehow a little bit reestablished. So that tradition is sort of lost. And, and Giersch is, is very hungry to absorb the new input that comes from the Anglo-Saxon sphere. So he knew, knows people in England and in, in, in the U.S. and France. He works at the OECD and he's, he's totally international. So, so he, is, he has a completely different economic background. Um, as I said, normatively, he, he's, he stands with the order liberals. But in terms of an economist, he has very different influences in his mind, and and that continues. And when he becomes a political advisor, he draws on that international experience. And because he does that, I think he's also able to absorb the Keynesian approach to economics. And he uses it, and he uses it wisely, and he's never dogmatic. And that is also one of the things I like about him. You 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 said the word pro pragmatist. He was also a pragmatist. Um, he, he thought that there could be such a thing as a Keynesian situation or a Keynesian moment in which it was simply common sense and wise to use Keynesian tools. But then, of course, there came a situation where these tools didn't work anymore. And that was in the 70s with the oil price uh, crisis and the recession and stagflation in, in Germany. And it was clear that if you pump more money into the system and have the state buy more things, it will just accelerate inflation and it, will, it just won't help. 
So that was the point where he switched. Um, he, he had second thoughts about the usefulness of the Keynesian approach in this specific historic situation and came up with supply-side economics and um, gave the according advice and, and fostered the concepts, etc., and was also very influential in, in doing that. Um, one has said about Keynes that he changed his mind a little bit too easily and in and, and, and fluke, um, but he, he replied to that, that when situation changes and when you learn new things, you might want to adapt <laughs> what, yeah. what you recommend. And that's something that Gears did too. And it was not a rejection of a paradigm on dogmatic grounds or on principle, but it was because the situation was no longer adapted to it. And, and so there is the early Gears who's very much into trade theory and welfare economics, and he's, he's more the, well, potentially interventionist um, eco economist who thinks about what the state can do and, and should do. Then comes business cycles and growth. And that's that becomes, if you want, even more Keynesian and interventionist. And then he drifts away from that and, and, and looks at questions like um, economic dynamism. Where does it come from? He adapts Schumpeter a lot. He's been, if he has been influenced in his writings by thinkers, it's Schumpeter. And it's it's Hayek in the evolutionary aspect. That's that's really what interests him. Where yeah. where do where, where does change come from? Where where does the new stuff enter the world? That's very interesting. Yeah. Oh, it is. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. I think it's also. Uh, I think it's a it's a, it's an it's a wonderful illustration in many ways of what you you said before of of how ideas matter is is not right that they somehow conquer all the minds, but that they become resources to draw upon to understand different sort of problems as they arise in, in economic policy. Mm. Gish was um, a, a very likable person, and he was never too sure of himself. <laughs> well, that's something I, I like. When, when, when people do have um, the head full, full of ideas, but they think, twice or three times or four times and, and, and always question themselves whether their assessment of the situation is right and whether they draw on the right theories, etc. He was he was like that. And I think that's very recommendable. <laughs> yeah. No, and, and quite unique for somebody in the position of being an economic expert, uh, I suppose. True that, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I would like to thank you uh, a, a great deal, Karen, for this uh, excellent conversation on order liberalism. I uh, learned a ton, uh, loved all the, the sort of um, aspects of it that we got to discuss. Um, and so thank you a lot. And um, yeah, talk to you soon again. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason, as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.